Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. Every believer has a testimony and calling to serve the Lord. I'm not going to have you raise your hands if you're a believer today. That's between you and the Lord. Your life will reveal it, should reveal it. That every one of us that name the name of Christ, that claim the name of Christ, that say that we're believers, that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a testimony. And we also have a calling to serve the Lord. It may not look the same. Right, The body's the body. The right hand's different than the left hand or uh, the right foot from the left hand. However, you can go through all that. But we're a body of believers, but every one of us has been called to serve the Lord, and we have a testimony. Because if we're believers in Christ, there was a moment in time where we came to the Lord because he had first come to us. And we received him. We agreed with him. We acknowledged that we were in need of what he alone was able to accomplish. And the Lord says, those who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. Right? If we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's a promise that goes with that. We shall be what? Saved. We have eternal life. And so God comes to live within us immediately. Holy Spirit begins Come into us. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. We now begin to be taught by the Lord, I believe, automatically because we're his children, that God begins to work in us in such a way as to draw us to the word of God. We begin to crave the word of God. I believe that he begins to convict us of sin because the Holy Spirit is always convicting us of sin, and we have a heightened awareness of sin certain things that take place for the believer. We have an opportunity to follow the Lord deeper in a walk with him. And the question is, are we willing to do that? I was sitting up in my office. (laughs) This is going to freak some of you all out. Relax. It's all good. I was sitting up in my office and I come on Sunday mornings and usually John and I get together, talk through our sermon, pray a little bit, and I come down and pray and but I was sitting up there today, and, and uh, John was teaching a class, and so I was there by myself, and I just had my feet propped up. I was kind of comfortable, and I was looking over my notes and just praying and thinking and enjoying looking out the window. And, and at about 8.15, two by two, one by one, threes, fours, people started to walk in to uh, the church. They had no idea that I was watching them. Right? I saw Roger and Kathy. Kathy's looking at Roger, and yeah, I saw ya. you. You're really cute, you know? Was, can I say that? It was pretty cool. And they came, Roger with his stroll, right? I saw all kinds of people coming in, and what was interesting to me is you, you didn't know I was watching you. I'm kind of up on my nest, looking out. The way the sun or way the light hits the windows, you really can't see in. At nighttime, you can, and I feel like a fish, you know? But during the day, you really can't see very well. But I could see you. Do you realize how many people are watching us all the time and you don't even know it? And as believers, how we walk, where we go, what we do, how we respond to people, how we treat one another, 
is being observed all the time, folks. Understand that. Know that. And the question is, what is being observed? What is being seen? Is it Christ? Is it the Lord? Do they see God's love in us, through us? Do they begin to realize there's something different? Or do they, oh, just, oh no. I don't need that. This is a story of Paul being on trial before Festus, King Agrippa. And I think it's fascinating because in in Matthew 10, we're going to look at Acts chapter 25. You can put your finger there and then turn over to Matthew chapter 10. And the Lord tells his disciples some things that in Paul we can certainly see fulfilled. Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 and following, he says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. And then in verse 19, he says this, When they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. I can't help but think that Paul had these verses on his mind as he was about to come before King Agrippa and Bernice and Festus and all these centurions, these leaders, and testify ultimately about the grace of Christ. And I can't help but think that he was in constant prayer. Lord, be in me what I'm not. Do through me what I could never do. Speak clearly. Help me to be bold. Help me not to fear. But help me to simply serve you. Look at Acts chapter 25. Verses 23 and following. If you remember, Festus didn't have a clue what to do. He was new on the job, went to Jerusalem, met with the council there. They wanted Paul to come and stand trial in Jerusalem. They wanted to kill him when uh, he was on his way to get there. And Festus said, no, no, he's in Caesarea. We're going to do the trial there. And as soon as he gets back to Caesarea, he sits on the tribunal and he has Paul come before him. Paul appeals to Caesar, and so Festus, knowing not what to do, says, well, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you're going to go. And then he goes to Agrippa, King Agrippa, and basically he says to him, I I don't know what to do. This guy's not worthy of death. The charges the Jews have brought against him are not the ones that I thought they were going to bring against him. And, And in effect, what he's saying is nothing sticks. The reality of it is Agrippa, Festus is saying, that they've got some uh, uh, disagreements about their law. And we know what that is. It's grace. And also that Paul says that there's a dead man named Jesus who actually is alive, called the resurrection. And so now he tells Agrippa these things, and Agrippa's interested, and he says, you know what, I want to I hear him. And so they put this whole meeting together, and there's the stage. And in verse 23, he says, So on the next day, when Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp, And entered the auditorium accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. I think it's interesting that Festus makes these next remarks in front of Paul. 
I, I don't know why that just hit me in that. I would have thought that he would have done that beforehand. But basically, I think what he's communicating is there's nothing that Paul's done here. Verse 24, King Agrippa and all you gentlemen here present, present with us, you see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me, both at Jerusalem and here. And listen to what he says, loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. He ought to die for what he's done. And yet, he knows that there's nothing that sticks. He knows that there's nothing there. He knows that there's no way that they have any proof that it's a dispute about grace and it's a dispute about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he goes on in verse 25, and he says, I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death. He reiterates this to everybody. Talk about setting the stage. He understands. He's already heard this. He already has listened to both sides, and he recognizes that what the Jews are saying about the apostle is certainly not true. They can't prove it. They can't verify it. And clearly, there's nothing here worthy of a death sentence. But he goes on. He says, since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write, for it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him. <laughs> that's, pretty, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? Hey, Caesar, here's this guy. And he supposedly has uh, transgressed the law and he's created all kinds of a disturbance in Jerusalem. And so I, as the governor over that province, am sending him to you for trial. Why? Oh, well, I'm not really sure how to express that one. I mean, can you? <laughs> Ridiculous. Again, Luke is just establishing the fact that Paul has done nothing wrong. This is a, if you want to put it this way, a religious witch hunt. Argument about grace and an argument about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Agrippa says to Paul, you're permitted to speak for yourself. Paul's listening to all this. He also knows Agrippa, which you're going to see here in a moment. Paul is being persecuted, folks. In Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, verses 10 and following, The Lord says this, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I I still can remember as um, I think I was about 18 years old, I was reading D. Martin Lloyd-Jones on his uh, classic on the Sermon of the Mount. And if you've never read it, I would encourage you to get it. It's fantastic. But when Martin Lloyd-Jones gets to this particular moment in time, he says, "Look, look what the Lord says. He says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, not because of stupidity. That's one. (laughs) Think about that, folks. How many times do we do stuff and we say it's in the name of the Lord and it has nothing to do with the Lord? Or things go wrong or difficult and, and it's because we've made the decisions The consequences are for us to bear because of the decisions that we've made. 
See, in the midst of this text, Paul has done nothing wrong. All he's done is proclaim the gospel of grace. He's proclaimed the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's being persecuted, pursued because of his beliefs in the Lord and his willingness to testify about that, to give evidence of that, not because of something that he did where he deserved the consequences. The Lord goes on, he says, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're in good company. When you get persecuted, when you get pursued because of your love of the Lord Jesus Christ and your willingness to declare his resurrection, the fact that he's come and live, he's living in your life and you have the opportunity of praising God for his grace and you're persecuted for that, you're in good company. So Paul is invited to speak, and in verse 2, we begin to see how he goes about sharing his testimony. He says, in regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you're an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me Patiently, and the word patient there means with great patience. I think it's interesting how respectful Paul is, how he desires with humility and meekness to give an account for the hope that he has, that he's being called to give witness of. He may not have enjoyed the moment, so to speak or agreed with why he was there. He's been in prison for two years. Charges have been brought against him. His life, in effect, is on the line. But in the midst of it all, he hasn't lost sight of the fact that God is absolutely sovereign and that the Lord has him exactly where he wants him. And so out of respect to King Agrippa and to all those that are there, he presents his testimony with meekness, strength under control, Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength under control. And he presents the gospel. He presents his own testimony with that in mind. Let me give you several things here as we walk through this that I think are very relatable to us. If somebody came to you and said, Well, what's your testimony? Are you ready to give an account? Are you prepared? Do you know what your testimony is? Do you know what you would say? Are you walking with the Spirit of God so that depending on the circumstances, the amount of time, the individual, that you're able to respond as the Holy Spirit would lead you in presenting your testimony to somebody? Sometimes it happens immediately, quickly. And people say, well, why are you so happy all the time? And you immediately have the opportunity to say, well, it's not really me, it's Christ in me. Do you have some time I can share that with you? Or somebody says to you, well, what is it? How are you going through this circumstance? Can I get with you and talk with you about that? And you have an opportunity, maybe in a little bit of a longer dialogue, to share with them what God's done in your life. Are we ready to give an account? Are we ready to share our testimony and to praise God and to glorify him? for what he's done. Paul certainly was. This was a bit of a different circumstance. He's in the midst of this trial, and he has an opportunity, a God-given opportunity, to share it. And the first thing he does is he begins to reflect on his background. 
his background. Verse 4, so then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify (laughs) that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. Fascinating. He immediately alludes to how he grew up. He immediately alludes to his background. He begins to share about his upbringing. He's very aware of the law and the belief systems that are represented. He used to be one of them. They've known him for a long time. He's had run-ins with them. He was trained under them. He even persecuted other believers before he met the Lord on the road to Damascus. With their approval, the Sanhedrin, the council, the religious leaders. In Acts 22.3, Paul giving his testimony lets it be known that he actually studied under Gamaliel. He knows the law. This is all about his background. All of us have a background. All of us have a background. If we took time to go around and start to ask every individual, how did you grow up? How did you come to Christ? What is it that God did in your life to bring you to himself to a point where you recognize your need of the Lord? It'd be fascinating, wouldn't it? I grew up in church. I was born on the mission field. There was never a moment that I I, I didn't go to church, ever, I was there every time the doors opened, and we had it more than here. (laughs) We had Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, plus we had all the other activities in between. All the time. I know church. Now, some of you have a different background. Some of you had nothing to do with church. Some of you had other churches, other religions, other faiths that you came out of. All of us have a background. Paul simply acknowledges it. Paul simply brings it out. Paul simply shares with them. I understand these people that are accusing me because I used to be one of them. He goes on and he starts to share about his hope. Do you realize that all of us as believers have hope? We have something that the world longs for. And Paul begins to share about this hope. In verse 6 he says, Now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by Jews. Now, what is this hope that Paul is alluding to? Verse 8, he says, Why is it considered incredible among you? And people really isn't there. Sounds almost attacking when he says that. I don't like that word, people. It's not in the Greek text. Why is it considered incredible among you if God does raise the dead? What's the hope? What's the assurance? What is it that drives Paul? What is it that he has that he desires for all his fellow countrymen to have? Why is he on trial? Well, it's because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because of the reality of salvation in Christ and in Christ alone. It's because of the opportunity to know for sure, absolutely, with certainty that you have life 
everlasting and it changes everything in terms of the way you live here and now. All of us as believers have a hope. Are we living in that? Are we living in light of eternity? Are we living in light of the reality that one day we're going to spend eternity with God forever? Or are we still living in the now? Are we still making plans and decisions based on what's best now? The temporal versus the eternal. How are we living our lives? What is it that motivates us? What's the joy that begins to come out of that? And do other people see that and recognize that? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 is a beautiful passage as Peter writes to believers and he says this, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. And then he clarifies it, yet with gentleness and reverence. How many people are coming to us asking about the hope that we have? Do they see us living in such a way that they realize there's something different about our lives because Christ is in us, changing us, transforming us, renewing our minds through the word of God and maturing us in him. We have an understanding of who God is because of the word of God and we understand what God has said about us and therefore there's a security about our lives no matter what happens around us. No matter what people say and no matter what circumstances we may walk through. Even when we trip and stumble and fail, we know that our Father loves us unconditionally. And we can run to him and we can receive cleansing. We have a hope. We have a certainty. He says, be ready to make a defense. Do this with gentleness. That's the word meekness which is not weakness, it is strength under control. The pictures of a stallion who has an amazing amount of strength but is under control by its rider. And reverence, respect. Look at how Paul is role modeling this for us in the midst of a circumstance that's utterly unfair. Can you imagine an American in Paul's role? (laughs) Oh, man. Well, we wouldn't like that too much, would we? Where's my lawyer? (laughs) Meekness, gentleness, reverence. Why is he on trial? Because of his belief in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's his hope? That Jesus Christ is alive. And that he has eternal life. Not because of works, not because of what he's earned, but rather because of what? He has received as a gift from the Lord salvation by grace. All of us have hope as believers. Are we ready to give an account? Well, he goes on and he begins to talk about his past, his transformation. What did he used to be like and now what's the difference? Verse 9, he says, So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things. Hostile means contrary, adverse to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. 
We can see that again in his testimony in Acts chapter 20, verse 22. When Stephen was being put to death, Paul was in hearty agreement. But he was also casting his vote against Stephen, that Stephen ought to die. Because what he at that point called blasphemy. Verse 11, he says, as I punished them often, he's speaking about believers. In all the synagogues, I tried to force them. The word force them means by violence, physical violence. He wasn't just trying to convince them or persuade them with logic. He was trying to force them physically through pain and suffering to reject their belief in the risen Christ. What was he trying to force them to do? To blaspheme. And then he says, and being furiously enraged at them. We get the word maniacal out of this. He was maniacal. He was a maniac about it. (laughs) Think about the transparency of this, folks. He's standing before all these people and he's just literally opening up and telling them the truth of the reality of his heart and his condition before Christ. How many of us are willing to do that? Think about that. What were you before you came to Christ? How has Christ made a difference in your life? How have you been transformed? He says, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Now the the word pursue and the idea of forcing them are both the idea of something that was continuously happening as he looks back in time. It wasn't just a one-time thing. It was all the time. Paul was constantly driven by this. Fascinating. Well, the Lord meets with him, and in verse 12 he says, While so engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, remember his name was Saul there. Why are you persecuting me? Now listen to this next phrase, fascinating. It is hard for you to kick against the what? Some of you have translations that say pricks. Some say goads. You, you know, I didn't grow up on a farm, but it's a, it's a really long, sharpened stick where if you were trying to drive cattle or a beast bigger than you, you would stand behind them and you would poke them. I, that's pretty smart. I certainly don't want to stand in front of them. And if they start to turn around to come after me, I want something that's going to make them decide to do uh, what I want them to do. And that's what they would do. They would poke them, drive them. Encourage them. This is the way I want you to go. What does the Lord say to Paul that Paul was doing? He was kicking against the goads. And the Lord says to Paul, it's hard for you to do that. Wow, that's an interesting statement. Paul was evidently wrestling in his mind with the things that he was doing, that he was participating in. He was finding it hard. He was questioning it. Even though he was maniacal, even though it was happening all the time, and even though he was going to Damascus with the authority of the chief priests in order to go arrest more believers, because he thought that was right before God to do, he was evidently struggling with this. Verse 15 says, Paul says, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, 
whom you are persecuting. Wow, shift, mega shift. (laughs) Suddenly the Lord comes face to face with the resurrected Jesus, the one that he's putting all these believers in jail and making sure that they're tortured and killed for their beliefs. Now all of a sudden he realizes that he's standing in the presence of God Almighty. We don't know exactly what the goads were that the Lord was using. But I can't help but think that part of that was Paul's remembrance of Stephen's sermon and the way that Stephen was stoned to death and how Stephen said as he was being stoned, Father, forgive them. And we don't know the story and the record of what other people said who were believers who were being killed for their faith as women and children even were being dragged out of their homes and persecuted because of their belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. But evidently, Paul was wrestling with these images. He was wrestling with why he was doing what he was doing. And it was something that he was fighting God against. It was a thought. It was, a, it was something in the back of his mind that God kept working on in order to draw him to himself. And Paul kept trying to fight against it. Maybe it was the emptiness of Judaism. And Paul understood. He knew the law. He had been trained under Gamaliel. And he's looking at the law, and it was empty. He's a shell. There was no life there. See, folks, how have you been transformed? What's your story of transformation? What did you go through? How did we all experience God at some point? And we fought against the Lord. I can remember a very specific moment in my life. And without going into all the details, in my heart, I literally looked up to the sky and shook my fist at God and said, I will not listen to you. That wipes me out. God's grace. God's grace. What's your story of transformation? What has God done patiently, kindly, with gentleness, with consistency in order to reach you, to draw you to himself? Paul is simply sharing what he used to be. In verse 16, he gives his motive. He gives his motive. The Lord meets with the apostle. And in verse 16, he says, get up. This is the Lord speaking to Saul at that point. He says, stand on your feet. For this purpose, I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. Rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Wow. (laughs) Why are you persecuting me? Stand up, Paul. I'm going to make you a minister. You know what that word minister means? 
In the English, we have all kinds of different ways that that's used. We talk about it in terms of service, in terms of ministry. We talk about it in terms of deacons. We talk about it in terms of apostles who have the ministry of the word. It's not the same word. This is the word that pictures a naval ship where the men on the very first level of that ship were considered to be the lowest of the low and who were simply the rowers of the ship. And the Lord says to Paul, Saul at that time, his name means asked for. And he changes it to Paul, which means small. He says, I'm going to have you be my under rower. And you're going to be my attendant. And you're going to do what I tell you to do when I tell you to do it. And I'm going to rescue you from the Jews. And I'm going to rescue you from the Gentiles. And I am going to send you to proclaim what I have told you, what you have seen, and what I will show you. So that people may have their eyes opened. People may be rescued from the domain and the authority of Satan. They may be rescued out of darkness into light. They may be rescued into my kingdom. They may actually become mine by believing in me. Wow. We're out of time. I got five more hours on this. (laughs) We'll pick up next week. Folks, let me ask you something. What's the hope? What's the hope? People look at our lives. Do they recognize that we know Christ? Do they recognize that we know the Lord? What's your background? Right? What is it that God's done in your life to transform you? What is your motive? Is it simply to live your life yielded to the Lord Jesus Christ so that Christ may use you as his servant, in order to proclaim what he's taught you, what he's revealed to you in the word of God, so that people who don't have any hope, people who are blind, people who are enslaved by Satan, people who are not part of the kingdom of God, may hear the gospel of grace, and they too may receive forgiveness of sins. And they too can have a hope to spend eternity with God in heaven with all those who have believed in the Lamb. Is that our heart cry? Is that what we're all about? Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. Everyone has a story. Please tell us yours. Visit www.hoffmantown.org and click on the Tell Us Your God Story link on the homepage to share yours with us. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope you will join us next week.